grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening. How's everybody today? It's warm here. Always warm here in Sacramento, I tell you. Once the weather changes, you might as well say you're pretty well doomed. Because <laughs> it's just, it's just going to go hotter and hotter. Look at this. I'm all crooked. Dang, you know. Hello, Jennifer Martin. As we wait for the guests to come in, uh, my name is Charlotte, and I'm, I'll be your host for the next hour one way or another. Uh, I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are 35 strong up and down the state of California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. All right. If you want to check us out, you can check us out at CaliforniaHaunts.org, or you can check out the radio show at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And uh, all our videos are there. You know, all the stuff we're recording, like this show, is all there. And uh, you can check that out. Tonight's guest is going to be really cool. I, I have this absolute fascination with Atlantis. And this is what this book that our guest has, has worked on. His name is Marco Vidado. I hope I have it. I said it correctly. You guys know how bad I am with names. Anyway, I want to thank everybody really quick who came out Saturday night to the ghost hunt. Uh, unfortunately, it was windy, so I had to change tactics about how I handled it because I, 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 I wanted to do a lot more hands-on training than, than what happened out there. But because of the wind, you know, because we use real strict EVP protocols when we're out there. And because of the wind, we really couldn't even go over the EVP protocols, you know, because we had the trains going, we had the wind going and all that going. You know, so it was just a, just a bunch of stuff, but, uh, but, uh, we did have a good time and we did get, uh, you know, we, we, things happened and we had, like, you know, we ended up dividing into, I think four teams and every team that went out, something did happen, you know, that they experienced, whether they were touched or heard, heard footsteps or had weird feelings or like when, when the psych, when, when, when Karen Clark, our psychic was walking across the feet, across the cemetery somebody saw like a mist following her. So, I mean, everybody had some sort of experience out there. So uh, if you want to check out a video about the event, check out my, my Facebook feed under my first and last name. Okay. Check out my feed. I'm going to post on the California Haunts page too. Check out my Facebook feed. And there's about a six minute video on there talking about uh, some of the stuff we did get. So, uh, but I did learn some lessons too myself because the SLS camera it was cold outside too, and the <laughs> the battery in the lap in the tablet didn't last very long. So I had to, yeah. See, yeah, Jennifer. See, so yeah. So I, I was disappointed with that. So I'm going to have to figure out a way to get a long, you know, get a more extended battery for the SLS camera because we were picking up stuff with that too. So anyway, just check out the video, and I'll go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and post it on my Facebook, and I'm going to post it over it. Um, you know, on, on the California Haunts page on Facebook. Anyway, without further ado, let's get our guest on because I'm excited to talk to him and I believe he's in Mexico City right now so we can talk with him. I'm really excited. So let's do this. Hello, sir. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. 
I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. I have been fascinated with Atlantis for, gosh, only knows how long. Great, great. Uh, I think it's been the same for me as well. I've been fascinating uh, with uh, Atlantis since as early as I can remember. And uh, uh, for, for the past 15 years, it's really researching the subject uh, through uh, very extensive traveling and exploration around the world. Okay, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. Well, I'm originally from Italy, but uh, I've been living in Mexico for the past uh, six years now. I've been always fascinated with uh, archaeology and uh, ancient civilizations, uh, visiting archaeological sites on uh, pretty much uh, every continent and documenting particularly the evidence of uh, ancient uh, advanced civilizations, uh, remnants of uh, megalithic cultures. For the past uh, 15 years, I've been uh, uh, developing uh, a model or a theory around uh, the possible existence of a lost Ice Age uh, civilization uh, um, identical with uh, Plato's Atlantis, and that's uh, the thesis that uh, I present uh, in my latest book, uh, The Empires of Atlantis, which just came out. When people, oh, wrong button, sorry, it flipped, me. It flipped on me, sorry about that. Okay, there we go. Um, <laughs> sometimes it flips it right, sometimes it doesn't. Um, when, you, when we talk about Atlantis and where Atlantis is located, I mean, people have thought, it, you know, people were talking, you know, the Bahamas, you know, that, that, that road that's under the ocean. People thought maybe it was out there. You know, there's people that think it's, it's out by South America. How did you locate it? Well, I think uh, you have to go back uh, to the sources. So the uh, most uh, famous, I would say, although by no means the only historical source of an Atlantis is uh, Plato's account. Plato is adamant about uh, locating Atlantis in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so that's uh, what I think is uh, the most obvious location for the lost continent, or at least it's the only one that uh, uh, fits uh, with uh, all the information, uh, all the hints uh, provided uh, by the esoteric tradition as well as uh, the scientific evidence uh, for Atlantis. When Plato spoke about Atlantis in the fourth century BC, he described uh, a sizable mid-Atlantic uh, landmass that was located, as Plato states, outside of the Pillars of Hercules, which was an ancient name for the Straits of Gibraltar. So there is no doubt that Atlantis was actually located, at least according to Plato, in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. Uh, now, Plato's account, uh, we have to keep in mind, uh, was uh, based on even earlier Egyptian sources. Uh, now, if we go back to some of these uh, Egyptian sources, Egyptian documents, they also refer to a land in the West uh, as uh, the homeland of uh, the gods. Uh, we also find very similar traditions in the Hindu Vedas, in the Bible as well, quite interestingly, uh, as well as in a number of uh, mythologies and mythical traditions from across the Atlantic Ocean, from Mesoamerica and South America, they speak of a land of the gods that sunk and was located to the east of America. So it's, it's pretty obvious if you combine this evidence from the old world pointing to a location west of Europe, west of Africa, and from the Americas pointing to a location to the east of America, that that land, that homeland of the gods, must have been located in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. So were you able to go out of the location at all? 
Well, uh, there are a number of hypotheses. You also have uh, to keep in mind that throughout the course of its history that spanned uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, uh, even the shape of uh, the landmass or continent of Atlantis uh, changed uh, a number of times. Uh, so Atlantis probably had its largest uh, landmass uh, around 2 million years ago and then sunk uh, in stages up until quite uh, recently. Uh, what is suggested in the book is that some of the last remnants of Atlantis uh, still above water, which may be identified with Plato's Atlantis, still mm -hmm. survived uh, above water in the region of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge up until, uh, certainly uh, after the end of the last Ice Age, we're talking about the time approximately uh, 11,000 uh, years ago, and possibly also as late as the European Bronze Age, uh, around uh, 3,000 uh, years ago. Now, if you if you also look at uh, uh, some of the most likely or the most likely possible location for Atlantis in the Azores Plateau, you uh, can also see that some of the highest mountains of Atlantis are still above water today and they form the, the archipelago of the Azores. So mm -hmm. that's uh, probably one of the last remnants, if not the last remnant of Atlantis is still above water. That makes sense. It's like the Hawaiian Islands because, I mean, the, the majority of the landmass for Hawaii is underwater, but, you know, because what, what essentially these islands are, are, are the mountaintops. Yeah, so it, it was a, certainly a process of uh, subsidence uh, that occurred in stages. Uh, this is also the model that uh, I propose in the book. It was not uh, a single event uh, that occurred in a single day and night, but it was a very lengthy process that spanned uh, several tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, that led to the sinking of Atlantis. Um, throughout the major episodes of subsidence, of sinking, uh, the latest uh, occurred uh, around 35,000 years BC, and then there was another one uh, around uh, uh, 11,000 BC, which was uh, the major episode, one of the largest, and also the one that was memorialized uh, in uh, Plato's account. Also, if you look at uh, the submerged topography of uh, the Atlantic Ocean, what you will find is actually a massive submerged mountain chain, uh, which is called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. If you were uh, to imagine for a moment of draining uh, the Atlantic Ocean of all of its water, what you would see is this immense mountain chain uh, stretching almost from pole to pole with heights comparable to the Himalayas. And there is evidence at some point uh, a large portion of that uh, mountain chain, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, uh, was uh, entirely subaerial, meaning it was above water. There is very significant geological evidence of the formation of rock that now forms part of the ocean seafloor of the Mid-Atlantic Ocean in a subaerial condition. So even from a scientific and geological point of view, there is very strong evidence that a sizable landmass sunk in the mid-Atlantic Ocean uh, within uh, relatively recent geological times. When we talk about sinking, what are we talking about? I mean, the, the, is, it from, is it from volcanoes or flooding? That would have caused well, it's it's the the majority of that uh, would have been because of, of uh, what are called isostatic pressures in uh, okay. geological terms. Okay. Basically, what that, what that means, if you imagine like continents or like continental landmasses, to be in a way. Um, floating uh, above uh, the, um, the the mantle like mm -hmm. these uh, um, layers uh, below the earth's crust which are partially molten uh, mm -hmm. 
then you have uh, these uh, uh, continental plates uh, that are subject to vertical movements. Uh, they can rise and sink in uh, the mantle. There are a number of examples also from the polar regions, for instance, where it can be shown that the weight of the polar ice caps is actually pushing the continental plates uh, uh, much deeper into into the mantle. So the, the process uh, that I suggest has been described actually by a number of geologists for the sinking of Atlantis. Actually suggested Atlantis was essentially a basalt continent. Uh, okay. So the geological composition of Atlantis was basalt. Uh, this basalt was erupted originally by volcanoes. It formed uh, a large uh, tectonic plate. Uh, and as this tectonic plate uh, started cooling, uh, like the, uh, the, the molten basalt that formed this tectonic plate started cooling, uh, it also became denser and heavier, so it started sinking in uh, the molten uh, uh, mantle uh, below, which is what caused in the end the subsidence. And this is a process that continues to this day in the mid-Atlantic Ocean, so it did not stop. Now, because of various cataclysms that they also describe in the book, uh, uh, most uh, recently around the end of the last ice age, what they suggest was a cometary impact from a large celestial body. This okay. process, uh, which uh, was uh, usually or tended to be quite gradual, uh, had a very significant acceleration. So uh, the, the landmass of Atlantis may have been sinking a few inches or a few centimeters per year throughout much of its history, but at times the sinking, the subsidence might have been catastrophic by hundreds of meters uh, uh, within a relatively short time period or just days, weeks or months uh, triggered by these massive uh, terrestrial upheavals like a cosmic impact from, uh, from a comet or, or another impactor. Now, uh, you also have uh, to add to these, uh, the global increase in sea levels after the end of the last ice age mm -hmm. is now a well-known fact that uh, uh, after uh, about the end of the Younger Dryas, uh, or about uh, 13,000 uh, years ago, so between uh, over the last 10,000 years, let's say, global sea levels rose by an estimated 130 meters worldwide, which is approximately uh, 380, 390 feet. So you can only imagine how much landmass uh, was lost because of a global rise in sea levels. So... If I'm understanding this right, this took millions of years for it to sink. So it wasn't like something like uh, like like a volcano exploding like Mount Vesuvius and taking everybody out. It was more of a gradual thing? Yes, it was a very large landmass. So you have to imagine that uh, when, when Atlantis had its largest extension, uh, it was a, a huge landmass that stretched across much of the uh, mid-Atlantic Ocean. So, uh, and it was essentially a volcanic landmass. Uh, still, still to this day, in the region of the mid-Atlantic Ridge, there are hundreds of active volcanoes. The Azores themselves are mostly volcanic islands. So it was a place of very intense uh, seismic and uh, volcanic activity um, that, of course, at point uh, would have caused uh, catastrophic volcanic eruption and episodes of massive sinking and subsidence of land uh, in uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's just like even now when you think about the, ma the, the, the land masses, even the United States or, you know, Great Britain or whatever. I mean, Hawaii is gaining land because of the, vulc mm -hmm. because of the volcanoes. But then again, there's areas where the, the soil is just dropping off in, in, into the ocean. Mm-hmm. 
and it's and it's so gradual nobody really notices it but who knows in a couple million years if that if california you know if, if parts of california aren't going to be on the coast you know right right and it's a it's an inherently unstable um process so these are these geological structures particularly uh, these uh, basalt structures, uh, they're inherently unstable. So you, you really have to picture them as uh, almost like some, some huge uh, rafts uh, that are literally floating on this uh, ocean of molten magma, which is uh, the, the Earth's mantle, uh, like the lower layers of uh, the the earth's crust and so uh, they they can like rise and sink uh, often even by hundreds of meters or even kilometers at times over relatively short periods of time particularly if this is triggered by cataclysmic events so just imagine what would have been the consequence or the forces released by a cometary impact like impact of a massive celestial body in the same region of the mid-atlantic ocean they could have triggered really catastrophic episodes of, of subsidence. And by the way, uh, whereas certain uh, parts of the Earth's crust, uh, like the region around the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, uh, where a situate Atlantis sunk, there were other parts of the Earth's crust that rose from the depths of the sea, which is the case with much of the Andes Mountains of South America, which show... Um, evidence of uh, an equally dramatic and sudden uplift uh, that seems to have occurred within recent uh, uh, geological uh, within the recent uh, geological period uh, there is uh, even evidence in some portions of the Andes mountains of uh, South America of uh, an uplift uh, of over 4,000 meters uh, at places that may have occurred after humans were already present in the American continent. So whereas a certain parts of uh, the um, Earth's crust uh, sunk uh, in the ocean, others were uplifted and raised uh, with the creation of these huge mountain chains. So that the face of our planet was radically changed uh, as a consequence of all these uh, cataclysmic events uh, since, uh, since the last ice age, basically. I've seen, you know, um, documentaries about that, where people, where, where archaeologists, at, you know, anthropologists, will show you where the water levels were because mm -hmm. there's the, because there's bones of fish, you know, ingrained in 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 the in the sides of these mountains, so they can track, you know, just how high yep. the water was. It's fascinating. It's fascinating well, when you think about it. Yeah, well, it's a, it's always a mix of both of two things, right? So uh, when you find like uh, um, like marine organisms uh, fossilized in what are today like dry land, what is today dry land, or in the interior of continents, you have to wonder as to whether that was because sea levels were higher in ancient times, or because of all these geological uh, uplifts uh, and uh, and movements. So we know, for instance, the many mountainous regions of our planet, including the Alps, the Himalayas, the Andes of South America, were formerly underwater, they were part of the seafloor, and that were raised to their present elevation because of geological and tectonic movements. So that basically like raised that uh, ancient uh, uh, seafloor. And by dating uh, some of these fossil organisms, they're still entrapped or embedded in the rocks. It's also possible to date, in a way, the time when uh, these geological upheavals occurred. 
you know, what I, and I think what people don't really realize, because when we're standing in what I call quiet zones, like my house is on a quiet area. My neighbor's house is on the plate. Because if there's any kind of earthquake or anything minor or anything like that, their house shakes, mine doesn't. Which is good for me. <laughs> not for your neighbors. Yeah, not for my neighbors. So what, what people don't really realize is how active the mm -hmm. Earth is. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we live on a very active planet. And the, the fact that we live right now at a time of relative geological stability, like we have never witnessed, at least not in our lifetimes right. or in that of our ancestors, uh, any geological upheaval of the scale of the magnitude of these, uh, of these ancient cataclysms. But that doesn't mean that these cataclysms and upheavals did not occur in right. ancient times. There is plenty of evidence uh, of that. Uh, and uh, more, more recently, uh, also, also within uh, scientific academic circles, uh, um, the theory of the Younger Dryas impact, or what has become known as the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, has gained much broader acceptance. It's the idea that uh, as recently as uh, 13,000 years ago, or 11,000 years BCE, a massive comet uh, impacted our planet, causing uh, worldwide devastation mass extinctions uh, on, on a scale that our planet probably not seen since uh, the extinction of the dinosaurs over 60 million years ago. If you get something like, like let's talk about a big asteroid, or and I, I know you see this stuff in sci-fi movies all the time, but when, you know, we're talking about comets impacting with the Earth mm -hmm. and stuff. Is that enough of a hit if it's big enough to knock the Earth off, off its access to, access to, to cause the, the, these changes? Well, that, that's a significant possibility. Actually, it is suggested uh, not only by the geological evidence uh, that shows uh, like a reversal, for instance, in the magnetism of uh, certain rocks, uh, um, but it's also suggesting that several mythical and historical traditions from around the world. So there is this idea, also in the esoteric tradition, that in former times, uh, during the Golden Age, the Earth uh, spun uh, perfectly upright, uh, so the Earth's axis was perfectly perpendicular, and uh, it was only as a consequence of some massive cataclysm that it achieved its present tilt uh, of around 23 degrees. Uh, there is also the suggestion uh, uh, by, for instance, the likes of Charles Hapgood, number of scientists, a uh, uh, number of scientists that have studied the, um, like the, 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 the movements of uh, the Earth's crust, that the position of the Earth's pole so was also displaced uh, several times, uh, actually just uh, throughout uh, the last uh, uh, one or two million years uh, as a, a consequence of a, a variety of causes, uh, uh, really. But certainly a cosmic impact uh, would have been one of those uh, likely causes uh, capable of triggering a pole shift. Well, I was just thinking too, people, like I said earlier, people don't realize how active stuff underneath us is. Where it hit me really hard, I mean, I've been up to the San Andreas fault line, you know, and I've, I've seen the, the, the earthquake monitors and all that that they have out there. But what hit me hard was going to Mount Lassen here in California, and they have a, because that, that thing uh, blew its top in, in like 1910. And they actually have a display at the, at the, you know, at the summit of the mountain, they actually have a, a little place that you can go into. 
to check all this out. And the creepy thing about it all is that they, they have a seismograph up there, you know, and there's one road going in and one going out. So your thought is if, if something goes wrong, there's no, there's no place to go. But they had a photo, you know, back then they had this photographer that took black and white photos. So mm -hmm. they blew these photos up to life size and they had them on murals on the walls. So when you're walking through there, it's a surreal feeling because even though they're black and white, you see the devastation that this thing was causing during the stages when, when it blew. And then the first thing you think of is, oh, my God, I'm on top of this mountain. There's no place to go if this thing goes again. Yep. So you can pretty much imagine what they went through, like like even Mount Vesuvius when 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 that went, you know, in Pompeii. Mm-hmm. It's, it's spooky. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, when when you think about the uh, cometary impact of the scale of uh, the one that's been suggested uh, for the end of the last ice age or the younger Dryas, um, you you have to think uh, not only of the immediate consequences uh, of uh, the impact itself, which of course would have been catastrophic, even with right. a relatively uh, small-sized uh, celestial body, but that would have triggered a massive earthquakes, uh, volcanic activity throughout the world, uh, massive uh, tidal waves or tsunamis. Uh, they would have devastated uh, the coastlines of uh, continents. There is uh, actually evidence. Uh, that uh, the dust uh, that uh, was produced uh, by the impact uh, actually obscured uh, the sun uh, for many centuries, um, actually for well over a thousand years, uh, uh, creating conditions very similar to a nuclear winter in which no crops would grow. Uh, number of animal species, including the mammals, uh, went extinct uh, around that time. So these would have been really uh, terrible conditions. Um, thinking about this, have they, has, is, I mean, how advanced, and I know you guys, uh, you know, are, are going on what Plato wrote, how advanced do you think the society was? Because, I mean, there's a lot of stories about them being very, even having high-tech stuff. Mm -hmm. So how advanced do you think they were? Well, Plato, Plato, uh, as I said, is uh, just one of the sources. I think uh, mm -hmm. many, many authors about Atlantis, uh, they just tend to focus on Plato's account. But the reality, as I also show in the book, is that uh, Plato is uh, one of many different sources. And if you uh, include also the testimony of the esoteric tradition, I think we can create a very uh, comprehensive picture of Atlantis and of Atlantean civilization throughout its different ages. Uh, now, even uh, if we stick to Plato's account, Plato is clearly describing a very advanced uh, civilization, uh, uh, at least by the standards of uh, his time. When he talks uh, about Atlantis, he talks about these uh, immense uh, uh, feats of engineering and architecture, the description of the city itself. Uh, it would have been immense uh, by, by any standard, even by modern standards. A city probably three times the size of Imperial Rome, uh, just, uh, just for a comparison, with immense canals, earthworks, uh, ditches, to the point that Plato himself uh, says that uh, all these works uh, would have appeared uh, almost entirely fabulous, uh, right? So, to the, to the point that even even Plato could almost not believe uh, the scale of uh, Atlantean construction, Atlantean engineering, uh, as it was being like described and the story was being retold uh, to him. Um, now, this is uh, what we what we know from uh, Plato's account. Uh, however, if we also 
go back to some of the other sources, for instance, in the Hindu Vedas, which are some of the earliest uh, uh, religious texts uh, that are known to men. Uh, Atlantis uh, is uh, also described uh, there as a mighty, powerful civilization in the West. It's uh, quite curiously called by the name of Atala, which was one of the uh, seven climates or seven continents of the Earth uh, in the Hindu uh, tradition. And it is described as a place of splendor that possessed immense cities. Uh, quite curiously, the description of the capital city of uh, uh, Atal or Atlantis in the Hindu Vedas and in the, in the Puranas uh, almost exactly matches uh, Plato's description of Atlantis as a city built in uh, concentric rings, uh, which is therefore called Tripura or the triple city in uh, the Hindu epics. Uh, this civilization is described as a very advanced uh, civilization uh, that was possessed of what we would certainly consider high technology by today's standards or even hints that they may have uh, possessed uh, flying machines, uh, aircraft, uh, what would look like weapons of, uh, of mass destruction that are also described in many of these uh, ancient texts. And this is something that, uh, again, surfaces in the esoteric tradition, particularly in the Western esoteric tradition of Atlantis, uh, since uh, the first theosophists uh, published accounts uh, of uh, uh, life on uh, Atlantis through a variety of sources, through uh, like channeled uh, uh, sources, through uh, different uh, different types of uh, readings uh, uh, as well that suggest that this civilization did in fact possess uh, a very advanced uh, science, if not also very advanced technology. And this is, by the way, what we also find at many megalithic sites, at many of these uh, very enigmatic archaeological sites around the world that may date back to the time of uh, Atlantis, uh, um, that uh, their evidence of uh, very advanced uh, technology in the form of uh, machining, uh, cutting, uh, raising immense blocks of stone, uh, which are all feats of engineering uh, that would be hard to replicate even with the science and technology of today. So uh, all in all, I do think that that civilization was an advanced civilization. It was destroyed in a cataclysm at the end of the last ice age, basically reverting uh, to a much more primitive status, as, as Plato also suggests. Uh, civilization was destroyed and survivors had to begin to start over again like children without any memory of uh, the achievements of ages past. Is that what you mean? Because, um, you know, when, when most of us think about Atlantis, we think about the empire of Atlantis. Now, your book is titled The Empires mm -hmm. of Atlantis. Is, is that what you're referring to? Like all the times they had to start over and then they would rebuild yes. the empire and then they would crash back and come down? Yes, what the title alludes to is uh, the fact that there were multiple Atlantean civilizations. If you think about uh, the timeline of Atlantean civilization that spanned uh, tens of thousands of years. So over this uh, immense period of time, uh, multiple Atlantean empires, multiple Atlantean civilizations rose and fall. What I, I identified is uh, two or three, if you want, the major cataclysm 
that marked the Atlantean history, uh, one around 35,000 BC, that was the first major cataclysm, uh, after which uh, that basically caused the downfall of uh, the first Atlantean civilization, the first Atlantean empire. This was followed by a second Atlantean empire between uh, or up until the beginning uh, or of uh, this like time period called the Younger Dryas, uh, around 13,000 uh, years ago. Uh, then you have uh, what they call the Neo-Atlantean period, which is a time uh, after the fall of the Second Atlantean Empire, in which Atlantean civilization uh, slowly started to rebuild itself until everything stopped on its tracks, basically, mm -hmm. around 9600 BC, which is the time that, uh, uh, or like the, the, the date, uh, the year that Plato gives uh, for the final Atlantean cataclysm, the final sinking of Atlantis. I have a question too. If they were trading with other empires, have archaeologists been able to find traces, like you know, traces of pottery from Atlantis, or or no? Because you well, think there'd be something over, like you know, in a near on a nearby island or something. Well, they were not only trading uh, with uh, other other cultures. Uh, you have to imagine and uh, picture Atlantean civilization as a truly global seafaring culture okay. that established outposts and colonies uh, in many different parts of the world. It was uh, clearly accelerated and triggered by geological instability on the Atlantean mainland. So the continuous uh, subsidence uh, uh, in the mid-Atlantic Ocean, uh, the sinking of land uh, that triggered mass migrations of people outside of Atlantis uh, that will reach both the old and the new world. So you find evidence of uh, Atlantean colonization in both uh, the American continent, particularly in South America, oh. as well as uh, in, uh, in Africa, in Asia. Uh, some of the areas uh, that uh, I think uh, if, if were, were large number of Atlantean monuments and structure, neo-Atlantean monuments and structures have survived, of course, include Egypt, uh, like the uh, primordial Egyptian civilization, as well as South America, all these incredible megalithic structures you find in the highlands of Peru and uh, Bolivia. I do suggest that some of these uh, may actually date back to uh, certainly to Neo-Atlantean times and quite possibly also to uh, Atlantean times. Now, if you were to go farther back in time, uh, the, the, the reality is that very little of uh, that uh, would have uh, survived uh, because after the passing of uh, so many thousands of years, it's right. extremely unlikely that uh, uh, everyday objects or pottery, say anything like that, uh, would have survived, particularly if, take, if we take into account uh, the magnitude and the scale of uh, the geological upheavals and the terrestrial cataclysm that caused the collapse of uh, Atlantean civilization and its various empires, so that at the end of the day, what survived uh, the test of time are those structures that were really meant to endure for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, like uh, the, the, the pyramids, the Great Pyramid in Egypt, right. particularly some of the other megalithic sites and structures around the world that also show evidence of a very advanced science and technology. Why do you think everybody's so fascinated with Atlantis? 
Well, I think uh, in a way, um, Atlantis mirrors our own civilization. At its core, the story of Atlantis is the story of this uh, mighty and wonderful empire, this great civilization that uh, eventually became uh, corrupt uh, uh, through materialism and then uh, fell into decadence, which I think is something we can also see to a very large extent uh, today. Uh, there is this sense of a loss of the spiritual roots of our own civilization, I'm talking particularly about Western civilization, uh, there is a, this idea of a moral decadence of society in a way that certainly mirrors uh, these, uh, um, these, uh, the, the fall and the decadence of uh, Atlantis. Now, if we, if we also go back uh, to the root uh, of uh, the Atlantis story, at least as far as the Western tradition is concerned, so to Plato's account, essentially uh, what Plato describes uh, is uh, the fall from an original divine or semi-divine state. The primitive Atlanteans uh, were semi-divine beings or uh, the they shared the inheritance uh, in the blood of the gods, quite literally, uh, but then uh, they became corrupt, uh, they started mixing with uh, other cultures, other people, they fell into materialism, and so that uh, would eventually cause the downfall of Atlantis. So there is also an idea of cyclical time, there are in fact uh, like cycles uh, in uh, history, in the history of civilization, so that uh, we go from uh, like a golden age uh, to a silver age, a bronze age, iron age, and the cycle starts over again. So I think we're also at a, a very similar point in the cycle of civilization uh, as uh, Atlantis or Atlantean civilization was over 10,000 years ago. Doesn't that happen to a lot of societies, though, you know, that are really advanced? I mean, look at the Romans. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a very similar process. And I think it's uh, very arrogant uh, from our side to pretend that our civilization is uh, essentially immune to this uh, cycle. If you think about many great historical civilizations, like the Romans, uh, for instance, uh, think about uh, the collapse of the Mayas or the Khmer civilization in Cambodia at Angkor. You have many examples of these great and powerful civilizations that uh, uh, at some point they just fell into decadence uh, and then uh, they were no more. Of course, in some cases, uh, there was the case of the of the Roman Empire, of course, like they, uh, they evolved, they became something else. Right. This is also what they suggest happened to Atlantis, not that Atlantis vanished and Atlantean civilization disappeared overnight. Uh, it transformed, it evolved, so it, in a way we are the direct descendants of that civilization. Atlantean civilization culture still continued uh, to influence uh, the course of human history for many thousands of years, even after the fall of uh, Atlantis itself. So uh, what, it, what it described in the book is also the legacy of Atlantean civilization that lived on uh, long after the fall of uh, that culture. And we have, as I say, many uh, similar examples uh, throughout history from uh, the Dark Ages after the fall of the Roman Empire. So in a way, we, we still live in, uh, in a Dark Age uh, that was triggered by the fall of Atlantis. And we're just now rediscovering many uh, of uh, the um, or let's say like much of 
the same uh, the same knowledge you are making again uh, many of the same uh, scientific uh, discoveries like rediscovering uh, in a way the um, the same uh, the same principles uh, the same uh, forces and coming out uh, uh, once more of uh, this dark age um yeah and when you think about it you look back and you you wonder how like you did like when you talk about the different advancements that they probably had it makes a lot of sense because i mean when you look at some of the hieroglyphics in the pyramids there's electric light bulbs in there that's that, that are being depicted so who knows just how you know how far along the people of atlantis really were well, I think that there are there are certainly uh, many examples uh, of that. Of course, uh, some of those uh, may be more controversial than others. Uh, I think what you're referring to is, is like so-called dendera uh, light bulbs. Uh, there are a number of uh, like very mysterious, very enigmatic depictions of what appears to be advanced technology. But even if we stick uh, to the hard evidence uh, that is quite literally written in stone, we have uh, numerous examples from uh, many archaeological sites, megalithic sites around the world, of the use of uh, advanced technology and uh, machining even. So if we uh, just uh, stick to the Egyptian sites, uh, sure. for instance, there is evidence from the Giza Plateau, from a number of sites, even to the north of Giza, a site particularly called Abu Rawash, which is located uh, just some 10 kilometers to the north of Giza. It's a site of destroyed pyramid. Some immense machines were employed at the site. There is one, particularly stone, one particular stone block from Abu Rawash that shows evidence that the stone was cut with a circular saw with a diameter of over 7 meters, over 23 feet. So you have to imagine they, they, they must have employed immense machines for like cutting the stone. And all of this is quite literally written in stone. Uh, there is evidence also in Giza of uh, drilling uh, some uh, uh, boreholes. They were drilled uh, into stones as hard as granite or basalt at uh, speeds that can be measured by uh, analyzing by looking at the grooves that were left on the stone by the drill. It speeds uh, hundreds of times faster than even the best uh, machines, the best uh, drills of today. There is evidence uh, that uh, if you look, for instance, at some of the uh, statues uh, that we find at many Egyptian temples, which I also suggest were probably reused in a later time. So many of these objects, many of these stones were found uh, by later dynasties, by later generation, they were reused. But um, if you look at uh, how they were created, uh, there is no way this could have been created with these sort of simple tools, mm -hmm. like uh, copper chisels, stone hammers, that archaeologists suggest uh, these are uh, the creation of these artifacts would have certainly required very sophisticated uh, equipment uh, uh, in many cases uh, there is evidence that machines were used um, and of course like many people would ask well if uh, if that's the case where are all these machines right well right. The reality is that uh, we have to think that after a passing of uh, thousands of years, all of these would have essentially disappeared. So uh, the, the most valuable parts would have been uh, scrapped away or reused. Uh, the, the less valuable parts would have most likely eroded uh, away. Well, in some cases, we may even find like pieces, but it would be so difficult to um, 
to uh, to reconstruct even to what they belong. And it's a very funny thing in the field of archaeology. Whenever archaeologists find some objects, some artifacts, they cannot explain. Uh, they just explain them away as ritual objects, right? So this is an idea. It's almost a running joke that everything you cannot explain is just a ritual object. And so we have to wonder how many of these uh, uh, actually technological objects uh, they're still preserving museums around the world and uh, just being like mislabeled, uh, miscategorized. My brother was an anthropology major, I mean, an archaeology major. So we would have these long conversations about this stuff. And what, what would always strike me is the construction that was used like, like, in, like in Greece, mm -hmm. you know, with the pillars and everything. It's fascinating construction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, but I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to um, to downplay the achievements of sure. uh, ancient civilization because, yeah, of sure. course, if you look at the uh, incredible achievements uh, of pharaonic Egypt, uh, of Greece and Rome, uh, Rome, there are some incredible uh, technological and scientific achievements there. Or just think of the Antikythera mechanism, for instance. So these people are very sophisticated, uh, for sure, but. Um, I think uh, what, uh, when you when you look at sites uh, like the Great Pyramid, for instance, uh, the level of science, uh, the level of technology that these sites suggest is entirely incompatible with our accepted paradigm of history. Right. It really suggests that uh, the people that created these monuments uh, not only possessed a very advanced technology, but also very advanced science. It's not only the... Uh, technology side, so how the stones were cut, they were raised. We're very often talking about stones that weigh tens, if not hundreds of tons yeah. at many of these sites. But also the precision of that construction. I think about the Great Pyramid, for instance, the mathematical precision, the mathematical constants that were also embedded in the construction that suggests that the people that created these monuments possessed a very advanced knowledge of mathematics, of astronomy, they had a very accurate knowledge of the fundamental measurements of the Earth that they incorporated uh, in uh, the basic measurements of uh, their monuments. And all of these uh, uh, cannot have uh, just uh, been uh, the result of chance experimentation. Uh, it, certainly, uh, it certainly suggests uh, a very long uh, period of cultural development, probably thousands of years, in order to develop a level of scientific uh, knowledge, uh, which is honestly uh, comparable, if not even superior in many respects, to, to our own. Uh, that really suggests an extremely long period of cultural development, of which there is simply no trace in, uh, in the archaeological record. And this is uh, why I suggest this civilization was brought there for somewhere, from somewhere else. So when we find all these great monuments, uh, like uh, we see in Egypt, uh, in South America, mm -hmm. there is uh, no period of evolution. All these great structures and monuments they just appear as if out of nowhere, right. uh, as if to almost suggest that that culture, that civilization was brought there, already fully developed from somewhere else. And when we ask ourselves, so well, where was or what was that somewhere else, then I think that the answer is uh, certainly Atlantis. Which brings me to my next question. Isn't, I remember hearing this, and if I'm wrong, you know, correct me. There's an island off of Greece mm -hmm. where they worship, what was it? The, it wasn't the cow, but it was a bull or something yeah. like that. On Crete? Yeah, Crete, yeah, out there. Mm -hmm. And I know for, you know, there's some 
archaeologists that believe that maybe some of those people were the ones that had started stuff like Atlantis. You know, there's kind of a connection there. Yeah, yeah, you're probably talking about uh, Sandorin. Well, this is one of the uh, different uh, theories uh, uh, that uh, people from time to time uh, come up with uh, trying to locate uh, Atlantis in uh, different uh, different locations uh, around the world, uh, ignoring not only Plato's account, uh, but uh, right. dozens of other like traditions that very firmly situate Atlantis in, uh, in the mid-Atlantic Ocean. Now, uh, the question about Minoan civilization of ancient uh -huh. Crete and uh, Santorini Island is certainly an interesting one because that culture existed around 900 years before the time of Plato. Uh, now, the time of uh, the uh, the Minoan uh, eruption has been, uh, well, it's, it's still a matter of some controversy in, uh, in academic circles, but it's been like dated uh, to around uh, 1600 uh, uh, BC. Uh, and uh, it, it certainly like echoes uh, in many ways uh, the cataclysm that destroyed Atlantis in the sense that it uh, destroyed a very powerful and prosperous island civilization right. on, uh, uh, on Crete, on Santorini, with this massive uh, cataclysm, this massive volcanic uh, eruption. But I think uh, that's uh, only uh, as far as you can take uh, the, the comparison with the Atlantis story, because pretty much no other detail in the story matches. Uh, when Plato talks about Atlantis, he's talking about the civilization that existed over 9,000 years before his time. Uh, which is very different from just 900 years. He's talking about a massive uh, landmass uh, as big as uh, Asia and Africa put together. So not certainly a tiny island of uh, Santorini. He's talking about uh, essentially a colonial empire that spread to both sides of, of the Atlantic. So uh, I, I do think uh, definitely like Minoan civilization is uh, fascinating. And in many ways, we can also consider Minoan civilization as many of the other Mediterranean cultures that existed at the time as uh, uh, inheritors uh, in a way or descendants of Atlantis, uh, but uh, uh, I think these are all these theories that try to locate Atlantis in so many different locations right. around the world. Uh, they're they're just uh, they're just nonsense. Uh, the uh, they, they so clearly contradict uh, all the all the evidence we have from historic account and from the esoteric tradition. Now we talk you know, when people think about Atlantis, that's what they think about Plato, but like you said earlier, there's other historic accounts yep. of it. And do the, those do those historic accounts jive with what Plato had? Well, uh, now if you if you just read uh, Plato's account, Plato never claimed uh, to to have uh, invented uh, the Atlantis story. What Plato okay. says is that uh, the story of Atlantis was told to his uh, grandfather Solon by the Egyptian priests uh, of uh, Heliopolis uh, and the Sais, which were two ancient cities in uh, Egypt. Now, unfortunately, both Heliopolis and Sais are now piles of rubble. Uh, so it's, uh, it's it will be very difficult to trace uh, exactly mm -hmm. what sources, what documents uh, Solon had access to. But we have uh, a truly exceptional Egyptian source 
from a temple in uh, Upper Egypt, uh, it's the temple of Edfu, uh, where there are literally thousands of pages of hieroglyphic texts uh, covering the walls of the temple. Um, a section of these uh, is uh, what uh, Egyptologists have called the Edfu building text, and they tell a story that is remarkably similar to that of Plato's Atlantis, to the point that many uh, researchers think that this was actually, uh, if not the basis of Plato's Atlantis story itself, at least a very similar account uh, to the one that Plato or Solon may have had uh, access to. And what this story tells is uh, the uh, destruction, is that of the destruction of uh, the primeval homeland of the gods. It talks about uh, an early primeval age uh, in which uh, the gods uh, reigned uh, from uh, an island and how this island was later destroyed uh, by an enemy described uh, quite interestingly as a snake again mm. evoking uh, the idea of uh, comets or a celestial impact since snakes or serpents mm. were usually and traditionally associated uh, with uh, comets uh, because of their like tail right uh, and uh, then this uh, set of texts also describe how survivors uh, from uh, this uh, civilization scattered uh, around the world, establishing uh, outposts and colonies, and uh, effectively uh, becoming the founders of Egyptian civilization thousands of years uh, before. We actually have documents uh, like uh, the Turin uh, Papyrus or Manetos King list that uh, um, these are authentic Egyptian documents that include a very extensive uh, dynastic lists uh, that stretch back uh, thousands or tens of thousands of years. So if you look at the Turin's papyrus, uh, for instance, it talks about pre-dynastic uh, kings uh, that ruled over Egypt 30,000 years ago. So there is a very clear tradition among many of these ancient cultures, from Egypt to Babylon to Mesoamerica, that their civilization was much, much older. Uh, their history stretched back uh, into very remote prehistory tens of thousands of years uh, ago and uh, that various dynasties of gods demigods preceded uh, the purely human rulers of the historical period so there is this idea of a superior civilization of very remote antiquity that uh, basically gave rise uh, to their own cultures and civilizations of the historical period well, like you say, it makes sense though, because you know the the Egyptians built the pyramids, and you had the you had the the Mayan pyramids being built in South America, and it makes a lot of sense that they did scatter, and that's where that's where mm -hmm. you get similar pyramids built o over in South America as as you have over in Egypt. Well, this is a this is part of a legacy, right? So, with, with particularly when you look at the worldwide diffusion of uh, pyramids, um, what you have to think is that all these cultures were, in a certain sense, descendants of uh, Atlantis. So they preserved uh, a portion of mm -hmm. the Atlantean tradition. They uh, perpetuated, uh, in a way much of the uh, science uh, and the culture of Atlantis. This is not to say that uh, all these pyramids uh, are uh, contemporaneous. Actually, the evidence shows that, uh, for instance, even if we stick uh, to uh, the like uh, most of uh, like 
commonly accepted dating uh, of uh, many of these structures. Uh, in the case of the Egyptian pyramids, uh, the, the, the Great Pyramid Age uh, was around uh, 4,500 years ago, whereas in the case of the Maya pyramids, they were built from around 2,000 uh, up to as recently as uh, uh, 500, 600 years ago. So uh, there is a, there is actually limited overlap uh, between uh, these uh, these cultures. Uh, so that uh, the most likely explanation as to why we find uh, very similar symbols, uh, very similar architectural forms like that of the pyramid in civilizations uh, not only so far away in space but also far away in time, is to assume that this civilization uh, uh, derived from uh, a common ancestor of a very remote antiquity that influenced uh, the development of civilization on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, yeah, and I agree with that 100%. I mean, obviously, you know, at least they haven't been found, you know, where may, you know, maybe there was also a written record, you know, in stone or whatever, maybe that got broken up or something, because these people knew how to build the stuff. Hmm. And if it is being passed down and passed down and passed down from generation, then maybe somewhere somebody is going to find some kind of written record. Yeah, no, and there, there is in fact uh, uh, evidence, and this is suggested by numerous traditions of the fact that uh, uh, this uh, civilization, this Atlantean civilization, was uh, in a way uh, aware of uh, the cataclysm or had at least some, some warning of uh, the uh, cataclysm that uh, uh, was going to was going to happen was going to befall them and uh, they they took measures uh, in order to preserve some of their civilization and uh, mm -hmm. culture. So uh, you have this idea of uh, holes of records of shelters that were created in different parts of the world to store some of the Atlantean knowledge and uh, technology. Some of these uh, and this is something I suggest in the book uh, were certainly opened uh, uh, immediately after the cataclysm. That's the time uh, uh, during during the Younger Dryas, uh, basically between uh, 11,000 and uh, 9,000 uh, BC, when you have a massive uh, flourishing of agriculture, of technology throughout the world, which I think uh, is, uh, is linked uh, to the rediscovery mm -hmm. uh, of uh, Atlantean knowledge to an attempt to recreate uh, Atlantean civilization in the aftermath of uh, the cataclysm. But then there is also evidence that this uh, great uh, reconstruction effort was stopped on its tracks, uh, possibly by a second cataclysm uh, around 9600 uh, BC, and this is uh, what truly marks uh, the end uh, and the, the, the final downfall of Atlantean civilization. Uh, this, of course, leaves open uh, the possibility that some of these uh, ancient uh, repositories of knowledge may still exist uh, in, in different places around the world and may one day be rediscovered. Well, when I just, uh, you know, I, to this day, you know, even after studying up on this stuff, I just find so hard to wrap my head around that, the machine thing where it's technology that obviously we don't have, you know, with the, as advanced as we are here in the United States, we don't have the technology to build the, to, to build a massive thing like a pyramid. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, I, I wouldn't say that we don't have the technology. I think we we, we could probably do it. Uh, 
uh, with uh, with the technology of today. Uh, the point right. is that uh, our our model of civilization is so completely different. That when you look at these monuments, they were built for eternity. Uh, you mm -hmm. have structures like the Great Pyramid that were meant to last for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, which is a very opposite, uh, which is quite the opposite of our like very utilitarian architecture. There is very little in our own civilization right. that would survive for 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 centuries and not to speak of but of thousands or tens of thousands of years so many of these structures were actually uh created with uh, a specific purpose in mind and uh, with the uh, objective uh with the idea that these would last uh, for many thousands of years absolutely fascinating so what's next for you well, there are a number of things. Uh, right now, I've been uh, focusing most of my research on uh, ancient Mexico and uh, Mesoamerica. I've been exploring numerous archaeological sites uh, throughout uh, the region. Uh, also, uh, trying to uncover more evidence of uh, these uh, ancient uh, advanced uh, civilizations. Uh, I've recently uh, created uh, a foundation to sponsor actual archaeological research and excavations at uh, a number of sites uh, throughout uh, Mesoamerica, working in partnership with uh, academic uh, and uh, government authorities. So right now, uh, we have one major project uh, in pipeline at the archaeological site of Mitla in uh, southeastern Mexico, which is today the state of uh, Oaxaca, where we uh, believe uh, that a very extensive underground network of uh, chambers, tunnels, and caves exists underneath the site that may date back to the end of uh, the last ice age. This is a very interesting place that has uh, extensive megalithic architecture, um, huge stone constructions built in some cases with blocks weighing in excess of 30 or 50 tons. Uh, you have uh, numerous accounts uh, and uh, uh, traditions of extensive subterraneans underneath the site. So what our project uh, is uh, trying to reveal with the use of geophysical methods is uh, the possible existence of subterranean chambers underneath the site that uh, may date back to that very remote age, uh, to that megalithic age when uh, the site uh, was uh, was built. And it's, uh, it's curious to think that that site was also, uh, was also the first place in the entire American continent where crops uh, were domesticated, uh, pretty much all of our modern corn, um, gourds, uh, squash, they were all domesticated in that very precise area around uh, 10,000 years ago. So something must have happened there uh, that uh, suggests that people with uh, uh, very advanced uh, knowledge uh, not only of agriculture but also of monumental megalithic architecture arrived at, at that site so it, it will be very interesting to see what we can uncover underground in, in Mitla. i actually invite you uh, to visit uh, the foundation's uh, website it's uh, www.arx 
project.com. Uh, uh, maybe you can also uh, include that. We're now looking uh, for uh, funding uh, to conduct the first phase uh, of the geophysical study of Mitla. Absolutely fascinating to me. I have enjoyed this hour. I've learned so much. I have loved talking to you. And I want to thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I would definitely love to have you on again some other time, you know, to talk about your other research. But thank you. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, sir. You have a good evening, okay? Thank you. You too. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. That was really cool. I know I... I always say I learned a lot, but I really learned a lot because I, I, I'm a history buff and and uh, I was taking anthropology where my brother took archaeology. So we kind of veered, right? Anyway, if you tomorrow we're going to kind of shift gears. Uh, Dr. Erica Elliott is going to be with us and she spent time with the, with the Navajo and she learned some of their uh, healing processes and learned their culture and everything. And she's kind of an, out, she, she's kind of an out, outside the box kind of doctor. You know, when uh, regular healing methods don't work, she'll start you off on, on something natural or she'll she'll start you off on something that the, like, like, Native, like the Native Americans would use. So she's going to be on tomorrow with this usual time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. But uh, I know I'm going to do some more research on Atlantis after this show. But I, I really want to thank him. He, that, he's, a, like he's, he's in Mexico City right now. That's why, that's why we went an hour early. But uh, I thought it was a pretty cool, pretty cool show. You know, the guy, the guy said a lot. Uh, the guy said a lot. Um, if you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. Down in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a little ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That's the subscribe button. Click on that. And we've got more than 200 videos over there. And uh, you can just check us all out. Uh, you can look us up at California Haunts on YouTube. If you have trouble finding us, Head to the website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Click on a video there. That'll take you to the YouTube site. And uh, we spent you know, 12, 13 years over on Block Talk Radio. So I'm now putting those archives on the California Haunts Radio website as well. So there'll be access to all that. So we've got all those shows plus these shows. And if you want to hear us via podcast, you can listen to us on Apple. You can listen to us on iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, PodKnobs, almost every Anybody that carries a podcast carries California Haunts Radio. So you can check us out when you're driving your car. You know, if you want to take a nap, check us out. <laughs> but, you know, we just don't do shows about the paranormal, as you can see. We do shows about ancient things like Atlantis. We do shows about health. We do shows, we do shows about murderers. We, we do shows about criminals. I'll say criminals. Criminals. We do shows about spousal abuse. So we cover a wide range of topics. So I think there's a little, you know, if, if you do, if, if you go on the YouTube page, there's a little something in there for everybody. Okay. And if you like tonight's show, share it with five people. If you didn't like tonight's show, share it with five of your enemies. I like to see we're equal opportunity, but we want to get the word out about this show. The more, you know, the more word we get out, the more popular we get. Example. We've doubled our numbers from last month, so we had a huge jump. I'm hoping it's not a fluke. We'll see what happens next month, but we have doubled our numbers as far as the as, as far as the podcast version goes. So I'm really excited about that. 
I just want to get the YouTube numbers up. So if you guys could help me out with that, tell your friends and all that good stuff, that would be great. There's a ticker down at the bottom. California Haunt is a nonprofit organization. I say I own it, which I do. But everything you see comes out of my pocket, even the paranormal equipment that we go out in the field with. So if something breaks, I need help, you know, to try and get it because the funding's just not there. I have to thank Jennifer Martin again because without her, wouldn't have been able to replace my headphones. So thank you. But uh, if you could find it in your heart to donate to help us out, keep us on the air, love doing the show. I think you guys like the show too, or you wouldn't be here. That would be at PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, Venmo. Go to Venmo, type in California Haunts. Boom. You can do it from there. But I really appreciate you guys, each and every one of you that listen in all over the world. It's, it's fun to look at the map to see where the downloads are, are coming from because it's really fun to see, you know, the people in India that are, list, or that, that are listening to us. And we have people in Russia that are listening to us, people in Pakistan, people in Australia, people in Great Britain, some people in Canada, three Hawaiian islands. You know, it, the, the list is endless and it's wonderful to see. It's fun to go in there and look at all the dots. So I really appreciate each and every one of you. But I want to thank you guys again. And again, tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, usual time, Dr. Erica Elliott will be with us to talk about natural healing, the Navajo way. So it'll be kind of fun. In the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and run the way, run this book once again for you, the Atlantis book and his websites where, where you can check him out. And then Amazon, of course, is, is where you can get the book. So here we go. Websites. MarcoVigado.com InnerTraditions.com And the book is The Empires of Atlantis. And of course, it's available at Amazon.com. And just like that, I get to say goodbye. I will see you guys tomorrow. And I, again, I really appreciate each and every one of you. So if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe to the, to the YouTube site. Okay? I appreciate it. Have a good night. See ya.